Welcome to the Center for Internet Security's podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. Cybersecurity affects us all, whether we are at home, managing a company, supporting clients, or even running a state or local government. Join CIS's Sean Atkinson and Tony Sager as they discuss trends and threats, ways to implement controls and infrastructure, explore best practices, and interview experts in the industry. We are here to bring clarity to these complex issues to bring confidence in the connected world. Welcome back to the CIS podcast, Cybersecurity Where You Are. And we're going to do something a little bit uh, different uh, this time, kick off the year with a, a look ahead at the projections of what we see coming in 2022. Uh, welcome back to my co-host, Sean Atkinson. How are you doing, Sean? Doing well. Thank you, Tony. Great to be here. Yeah, pleasure to have you back. And, uh, and then we have a guest today, Josh Mullen. Josh, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Sure, a pleasure. How about sharing with the audience just a minute or so of uh, what you do here at CIS? Yeah, sure. So I'm the Senior Vice President of Operations and Security Services here at CIS, and that is the group that houses the MSISAC and the EIISAC. So most of the operational arm of CIS falls in our area, and everything from the SOC to cyber threat intelligence, incident response, and those kinds of activities. Yeah, great stuff, Josh. And uh, so we had a couple of your folks on last episode to talk about Log4j. And, you know, bad news, the end of the calendar year does not mean the end of the crisis. So how about just a quick summary of what you guys are seeing out there and kind of the issues that you're dealing with today with Log4j? Yeah, sure. So we're definitely still seeing active exploitation happening against the Log4j vulnerability. And as we knew was going to happen, we're finding organizations are really having a hard time identifying if they even have this vulnerability in their environment, uh, mostly because they either have it embedded in some uh, custom-built software that they didn't even realize it was in, or it came from a vendor package and they're having a difficult time with vendors giving them information about whether or not Log4j was used in their software packages. So we're still seeing problems with even detecting if they have it. And then uh, the good news though, we are starting to see a lot more people uh, patching, which of course we know some of the patches have their own new vulnerabilities associated with them, but not as bad as the first one. Uh, but also mitigations being put in place like web application firewall rules and uh, traditional firewall rules and IDS uh, signatures and things like that to detect both exploit attempts and uh, successful exploitations. Yeah, that's right. And this this issue of uh, just just to pause and think for a second, right? This issue of basic visibility of what's in the IT environment. I mean, this has been a decades long challenge, and it's not going away anytime soon. And but it's just that something like this really brings it up to the forefront, right? Just just to assess the risk of this new piece of information is incredibly challenging for almost every enterprise. And you know, Sean, you addressed some of this when we talked about the implications for uh, for CIS, right, as a computing enterprise, uh, you know, any any lessons you want to restate for us, you know, kind of things that you have done, because I, I know you really care about this sort of stuff, what, what we've done to increase our visibility to deal with these kinds of issues when they come up, heaven, heaven help us when they do. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think one of the key elements is um, obviously purporting to the controls, know your hardware, know your software. And now it's a layer down in the software level to the libraries. And as uh, Josh had mentioned, the incorporated code within particular systems. And so this has become a real challenge for us. And, and with some of the predictions, and uh, we'll talk about it momentarily, is this idea of the software bill of materials. Give me the information to understand what's running in my environment underneath that layer of 
what's produced under white label or whatever it happens to be of here's my product, but here's the other 50 to 100 things that are running that particular product to provide you the service. And so breaking down those barriers is a new element that is uh, that's really caused some uh, issues, I think. And I think, Josh, as you just mentioned, it's a really interesting point is um, when we're making predictions and uh, from the blog post that we had put up with regards to predictions, it's uh, it's one of those things we're going to have to pay specific attention to, that application programming interfaces. There's a lot of different things moving in this uh, very DevOps um, approach to software engineering, product and service delivery. A very interesting time to be in security. Yeah, exactly, yeah, no, Sean. Tony, if I could... Please. I was just going to piggyback on something Sean said too, is uh, specifically with Log4j, it could be in anything from a smart TV to an enterprise class cloud application. So it that makes it even more difficult is sometimes it's in a hardware device that's running this too. So to Sean's point, just having a software inventory isn't enough when it comes to something like this. And the bill of materials is a great uh, example of one way to remedy this. But from if you look at this from an executive standpoint, when they ask their CIO or their IT director, well, do we have this? I mean, why can't you just scan and tell me? We know if Adobe's installed or we know if uh, Office is installed, why don't we know that this is installed? And having that conversation has been pretty challenging to get the executives to understand this too. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, that this um, this question of visibility, I mean, people who don't work in this at this level, right, just have no idea of the complexity and the dynamics. You know, the stuff that's kind of always coming in and out of the environment or that's dependent upon this, which came from that, which was derived from that. And it's just, you know, there is no uh, easy answer to that. I mean, there's certainly lots of things you can do to be prepared, but that's a lot of machinery up front. That's a lot of expense. And you know, if you're trying to do it with human being power, you know, for the crisis at the moment, you're you're already two steps behind. So so as Sean said, we're, we're, we're taking a look at the upcoming year here and all these big themes and yeah, you know, the crisis of the month never ends in a month, I think. So, right. So we'll, we'll see Log4j continue to spill on for, a, you know, an unforeseeable amount of time. And, and of course, CIS, you know, this is this is part of what we do, right, is, is make sure that we don't lose sight of these things that, you know, it won't be done for us in a month or, a, you know, two months or 90 days or, or whatever, because it'll be affecting and rippling across our customer base for quite some while. And again, we're an IT company. We develop software. We support users. So we have our own things to manage internally with there. So, so the, you know, this crisis of the month thing, I mean, it's just been, uh, you know, a, a challenge, right? So when the press moves on to the next thing, Josh and team are still working the, the things that were, that we saw in the past, but help, can you help us put like a log4j into broader context, Josh, is the sort of class of problem that it highlights that we'll see another one of in six months or a year or sort of more broadly, what, what are we thinking about here in terms of the, the next things? Well, we've certainly seen a shift with things like SolarWinds, Hafnium, Kaseya, Log4j, where it's not necessarily going after traditional already advertised vulnerabilities, but these zero days, and then also going for something like SolarWinds or Kaseya, where it's a supply chain issue. Uh, I think uh, targeting MSSPs is going to be something we consider to see, or MSPs where the managed provider is the target, and then that ripples down to all of their customers. So that kind of thing. And then Log4j, where we're going after a library embedded in other things. Uh, be, anytime I think attackers can use these highly complex issues against 
us, they, they're going to continue to do that because it makes it really hard to defend against. And especially when it's already tough to find good cyber defense talent and find the resources to pay for some of these advanced systems to detect these kinds of attacks. So we, we're certainly seeing a shift that way. Yeah. I mean, it, it, you know, from the attacker point of view, right, this, this makes perfectly good sense. This is about yep. scaling, increasing their automation, and they, you know, you don't attack one target, right? You sort of cast a wide net and you're willing to take some chances, right? To, to uh, impact a broadly used commercial tool is also increases the chance of visibility uh, for the attacker, right? So there's a bit of, you know, calculation that they have to make about their own risk of the exposure and so forth. And, you know, the, the risk decision-making around this, as you've, as you've pointed out, is really non-trivial. Now, Sean, any thoughts again as a guy who, who's responsible for security of an enterprise? You know that is you you have to look at everything from the you know the flawed individual piece of software to the this entire supply chain. And so, how do you how does one sort of think about that and prioritize there? Well, one <laughs> you've really got to think about um, in terms of criticality. There is has to be, in, as you mentioned, it prioritization. It's impossible to think about everything. So where is my greatest risk, as it were? Start building a program around that and the underlying parentheticals that support that underlying product service, uh, underlying capability within any organization has to be prioritized. The one thing is, you know, we see, um, it's kind of what I'm classifying now as the, the Christmas crisis. It always seems to come at the end of the year uh, where we're dealing with these types of things now. And it's... Um, it, it's a step back. And I, I kind of want to make this uh, kind of uh, idea of this risk mitigation, but versus the operationalization of the response. So in a lot of cases, Tony, you know, we, we're working through, let's say, a prioritized list of risk and, you know, looking at controls, effectiveness, building metrics in order to understand our capability in response to that underlying risk. And then all of a sudden you get, you know, Log4j pops onto the radar. Okay, so all of that stops. And now we then move to kind of this crisis response to understanding our impact and exposure. And it's kind of always resetting. You're in such a dynamic uh, environment that you, uh, you know, what you would set out. So our 2022 plans to do all of this work can be interrupted with these types of elements. And it's, uh, I think Josh and yourself put it um eloquently is, you know, the malware developers, those that are looking to build these types of exploits and understand or, you know, have great creativity. And so looking for confusion within in the enterprise in order to understand what are the underlying issues, where am I going to have the greatest success? And underneath the radar, as you mentioned, Tony, do this stealthily, it is through these processes. And we saw, you know, Log4j from, I believe it was research, from Alibaba that, that was allowed us to, to move in this direction and understand uh, the problem. And then that also then reflects on those that are not necessarily disclosing and using these as part of their arsenal for uh, payload delivery and, and other elements of uh, undermining uh, our infrastructure. So it's it's complex, Tony. It's, you know, it's a daily conversation. And it's a daily consideration that you have to look at what's going on externally. How are we managing things internally? and building bridges, as it were. So it's, uh, you know, not an individual uh, individual's test, such your, as myself. Your point is, uh, is, is yeah. excellent, Sean, as always. You know, the, the prioritization, right? That's not a prioritization of pure technology. It's about business objectives and the risks to the business that you have to integrate into that. And I think that is 
you know, that is what a healthy you know, risk thinking organization has to do. But this idea of, you know, now your priorities, which were carefully thought through about the specific risk to our specific business are completely upended by this mass market, you know, may or may not be directed at us. In fact, probably isn't, but you don't get to ignore, right? Independent of the, the direct quantifiable risk impact to us. And so you have no choice but to, you know, to take a really hard look at that. And then, you know, of course, now you're getting a call from every member of the board and every customer of CIS on exactly that. And so that's incredibly challenging. So that leads us you know, what, uh, back to our, our blog posting where we, uh, a bunch of the senior folks at CIS uh, gave, put down some thoughts about what they see coming. Josh, one of the things you wrote about, which is a little bit uh, out of the mainstream, was about, I'll call it the burnout of the cyber defenders, right? This is something that you have to, really be conscious of it as a manager. So, so this, you know, these crises come and go kind of at the press and executive level, right? And they, people worry and they do and they agonize and oh, and here comes another one. So they move on to the next thing and you don't get to sort of, you know, there's a danger at that level, the management level of uh, crisis fatigue. Too many crises that they just become noise. But, you know, there's the, the folks that day to day have to deal with this and they don't get to move on to the next thing, right? They just, adds to the inbox and talk, you know, as a, as a, as a manager of people in this area, talk, talk to us a little bit about the, the challenges there about keeping people, you know, um, focused on priorities, right? doing good work, still developing and growing as professionals and yet providing, uh, you know, support through these really uh, uh, high demand, you know, 24 seven crisis kinds of things and, and how you, you know, what do you put in place to, to help people get through that? Yeah. Well, and that's one reason I wrote about it, Tony, is because as I talk to various members of the MSI SAC or EII SAC or just in the cyber community in general, this is a reoccurring theme that a lot of people are struggling with is it's already hard enough to find cyber talent and to retain those individuals when you do get them because just the state of the market, there's at any given time 600,000 to 700,000 open cybersecurity roles that's so people are already understaffed and they're dealing with their folks leaving on a regular basis, depending on the organization. Uh, but then as a cyber defender, uh, you know, we have to get it right as the defense every single time. The bad guys only have to get it right once to be able to get into our network. And so there's a significant amount of stress. And as the regulatory requirements have increased in cybersecurity and cyber insurance requirements and all of the things that our folks are up against on a daily basis. That is a continued drumbeat to them. And then you just layer on things like COVID-19, which has already taken its toll on everybody uh, in a number of different ways. And then you just get these advanced attacks. And at some point, especially for those organizations that we talk to that are uh, understaffed, under-resourced already, they're just feeling like they're completely overwhelmed and unable to um, respond to these things as they know they should. So for most people in cyber, they know what they want to do, they know what needs to be done, but oftentimes they're not resourced to do what they need to do. And that's a frustration and a burnout situation all in and of itself. But then when they're having to see that they need to re respond to these things or they just frankly don't have the visibility or the tools they need to effectively respond to this, they just feel defeated. And so that's one thing that we're trying to focus on with uh, especially our folks in CIS, but then the people member agencies that we work with is, you know, you can only do what you can do and continue to fight the good fight and, you know, put those 
the things in place that you can. And sometimes there's way, ways like partnering with the MSISAC, for example, for people that could be our members and, and let us take some of that burden by the services that we offer. And there's, uh, you know, there's other opportunities out there as well to help them, but it's certainly uh, not an easy thing to fix. Yeah, that, you know, I used to run watch operations also back in my government days. And, uh, you know, I mean, hats off to the people that do that. You know, it, it is um, ripe for burnout because when a crisis happens, you have all of a sudden, you know, in my, my old world, three and four star generals demanding hourly reports. And so this challenge of how do you sort of feed the information needs of decision makers while you're, and by the way, it's the same people that are grunting through logs and, you know, uh, trying to reverse engineer malware. They're the subject matter experts that know enough, right, to create the content for executives to try and understand the risk. And so there's no, right, there's no easy answer to this. A, a number of the, so, uh, sort of a, a related topic, a, a number of the folks that wrote in our, you know, projections for 2022 blog, like uh, Kathleen Moriarty, our CTO, and uh, I think Angelo um, and Kurt and others, talked about automation, about tooling, you know, about sort of more uh, streamlining some of the things to, um, you know, to take some of the, the this, this sort of front end burden off the data gathering, formatting, moving, uh, low end security decision making about, you know, whether something is safe or not, and that kind of stuff. And, and you know, there's a lot with, I mean, that's, that's a decades old discussion in computer security, but you know, Sean, do you see hope in the future, for example, for some of the things that are coming or what what's sort of on your radar to make some of the grunt work less uh, less challenging for the individuals, the limited and, and scarce people that we have to, to do the actual analysis? Absolutely. No, I think it's a very important point that Josh wrote about that, mm -hmm. uh, you know, we need to highlight and consider. And I think automation, uh, as you mentioned, Tony, you know, a lot of great work being done in security orchestration, automation and response that allows us to build playbooks, as it were, to automate processes when we see uh, underlying factors or conditions uh, that occur that allow us then to apply, uh, you know, that talent to, to other things. And um, a big push I see in 2022 for the automated capability. And I think to Josh's point as well is, um, you got to look at some of the smaller organizations that may not have necessarily the technical expertise to engage or even understand the capabilities that exist with an automated process. And again, obviously services such as the MS and EIISEC provide such great capability in this space. And even internally, we're moving in that direction because we see where there's efficiencies to be gained. Uh, and we see a lot of commonality, as it were, in terms of uh, underlying um threats and, and security issues, configuration management, and things of that nature. And applying that automated capability is going to reduce overall operationalization, really, of individuals to then move them into this, um, what I'll call an area, um, maybe threat hunting or understanding the environment to then apply behaviors to those that may not have necessarily an underlying playbook and being able to concentrate on those, utilize their skills where it's you know needed from an organization in terms of response. Because I think it also, and Josh, I'd be interested in your thoughts here, improvement in response with automation also allows improvement in those more complex because I've got more brain power behind reviewing those that are not necessarily um, what I'll call cookie cutter at this point in terms of a response capability. Does that make sense, Josh? Yeah, and I wanted to say two quick things to Tony back on the 
uh, topic of the just the mental wellness of our cyber staff too is one reason I wrote the blog post about this, or at least the little section in the blog was I wanted to make sure leaders too of organizations realize that this is a real challenge with their people and programs that they can do to uh, help improve employee engagement. And also a lot of times these cyber folks are so dedicated to the mission, they just won't take time off. They feel like if I'm not in the office, something bad is going to happen. And I think as leaders, if we can you know, make sure they've got coverage, make sure that they are taking time off just to recharge and get some time away as hard as that may be, I think is really important. And then I think uh, along to Sean's point too, is I've been in situations too, where we've had short uh, time windows to get things done. We didn't have the money, the tools, or the staff that we needed to get the job done. But at some point you have to look at, if I were to invest a little bit of time in fire prevention and not all of my time in firefighting, what could I actually free up? And that's something uh, I think what Sean's going with with the automation is, even though it sounds difficult to pull back from the day-to-day firefighting activities to invest in some automation, even if it's starting small with something that's uh, you could do with tools that you already have available to you. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to go out and buy a million dollar SOAR platform to get some of this stuff done, but just carving out that time and seeing what it does for your responses and things like um, sticks taxi feeds or ingesting IOCs that can automatically put blocks into your infrastructure could be a huge win uh, for your staff and uh, not only your organization security, but just from your staff from having to even look at some of that stuff. So. I think there's a lot of opportunities there for people to take advantage of the automation capabilities that are out there. Yeah, those are, those are great points that both of you made. And you know, Sean, uh, but Josh, actually back to your point on the, the, the kind of people that gravitate towards these watch jobs. I mean, again, that's my experience as, a, as an executive manager in government. The people that do it are dedicated to it. And they are, you know, they're, they're scarce. But once you find them, there's, a, there's often this tug of, okay, we need to make sure that you get your training in. We need to help you grow as a professional and you need to take your vacations. And, you know, I was genuinely surprised and your experience echoes that, that a lot of times these people are so dedicated to the work, it's hard to get them off of it, you know, for their, for the, for their own good, but also for the good of the mission and so forth. And so consciously managing that, right, to make sure that we don't overuse the, the good folks that, that really are our frontline defense, I think is important. And it also says we have to, then do whatever we can to get the grunt work, right? The the messy business of the data gathering and transforming it from formats and moving it around and all that kind of stuff. That that sort of thing. And again, it's been the subject of automation for some quite some years. And there there are certainly promising things, things that we can do, uh, things that we can learn from others. Many of this again, you know, my my experience was obviously a decade or more ago in this, but you know there were lots of tricks that people develop as part of that job that they, you know, that are shareable, right? That are are worth moving across to other organizations and helping people learn. But I, my experience with Ben and, and Sean uh, or uh, Josh, I'd appreciate your feedback on this. It's often true that the people that work operations are so busy that they're not watching the latest developments in automation or the emerging standards or the new tooling. And so how do you balance that? Are there special people that do that? How do, how do we track that information so that we know when it's ready, for example, to bring into our world or that who are we interacting with to help us sort of look for those opportunities. I'll, I'll start with you, Josh. Any, any thoughts there? Yeah. I, and that's something actually in CIS we've been, at least within OSS, the group that I'm with within CIS, we're looking at how do we leverage outside organizations that are tracking 
who's the new vendors in this space and who are bringing new cap capabilities that we just don't have time to review. So uh, it's a little bit of a mix of bringing in almost a CTO-like individual within our organization to be on the forefront of emerging technologies and that sort of thing. And then also having when our folks go to training, if they learn something new at a SANS course or something else like that, are they bringing that back to the organization to teach us about it? And uh, leveraging organizations that specialize in this, like Gartner or others that can feed information to us about the latest and greatest things. Because you're right, the people that are uh, busy watching the the SOC and uh, you know developing, looking at threat intel, they don't necessarily have time to do all of that. So I would say, though, the other part of this is a lot of people that do this kind of work, this is also, I think, their passion as much as mm -hmm. it is their job. So sure. it's not uncommon to get messages from people after work that says, hey, I've subscribed to all these RSS feeds about cybersecurity, and I just happened to see this. So we also get a fair amount of information that way, too. Josh, that is exactly my experience with the big watch things in the Defense Department and so forth. And, and again, all credit to the amazing people that gravitate to yeah. that work. And you know, boy, I just, I couldn't, I just, I don't know that I could do that, you know, with the intensity over the years that I've seen some some folks do that work. You know, when you, and I'll just offer a phrase here, Josh, that I think you were headed down this route. You know, you're, because I think the way you're thinking of it, right, it's not about your workforce. In effect, you're building a hybrid workforce here, right, of key partners of, and your suggestion to the states, right? Think, see us as part of your workforce, right? We can do certain things on your behalf. The managed service providers, right? They play a critical role in the actual IT and how it operates and how it's configured and all that kind of stuff. And you have to think of this as, you know, the combination of them all. And so your procedures for dealing with a crisis are not about the people that work directly for you. It's about all of them, right? And so how do you, you know, so you have to, in fact, have then uh, policies, uh, pr procedures in place that will, in fact, encompass all that. And I think that's a very, you know, and yes, we all have partners, but I think you're, you're you're down a road, again, I'll call it, for lack of a better term, sort of a hybrid workforce, right? People that are in our spaces, not in our spaces, work for us, don't work for us. And then that really, I think, changes the perspective, right? Then you can say, well, what is it that we can focus in on? What can our friends help us with, right? Or how can I help people who will never have a room full of folks like the ones that work for you, but but they do have unique insight into their place, right? The The, the networks that they manage. And, you know, Sean, you talked about um, hunting. You know, I was around in the early days of that from a government perspective. And I said, the only re the, the, a key element to me to make have hunting make sense is that the term that got used in the government a lot was home field advantage. The only thing we have is home field advantage. It's our network, doggone it. We should be able to run it. We should have good visibility into it. And the other guy doesn't, right? The attacker doesn't. In, in a lot of cases, they have to sort of stealthily get in. They don't get to control when you update in general or when things change or, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so to the extent that you have and can manage home field advantage, and there were attempts to do a lot of clever things like that in, back in my day, then you then defense becomes a more active thing, right? You're not passively waiting for the bad thing and now we, we muscle in quickly, but we in fact actively pursue activities that we might, for example, might uh, scare out the bad guy or force them to reconnect or, you know, put them at risk of visibility and, and so forth. So much more clever way to think about it. But Sean, you know, again, I know you thought a lot about these, the complexities of defense, right? And for you, you know, you, you encompass everything from policy to technology and, and speaking to boards, which is really important. So any, any thoughts about the future of that kind of thinking about uh, a more dynamic and, and holistic way to think about defense? 
No, absolutely. Again, just to echo some of the things Josh has mentioned, it it's um, you know, you're building this the capability internally, and um, really, your greatest asset is the people. And as to Josh mentioned, we've, you know, any time I've ever talked to an information security professional across, you know, through conferences, whatever it happens to be, passionate. You know, this is not just my day job. This is what I do after work as well, and and being able to utilize that because. Um, Again, I'll say this tongue in cheek, but you've got to have a certain mindset, as it were. You know, security is this journey. It's not a destination. We're not going to be able to solve this tomorrow. We've you know, we've got to put our best practice forward, risk mitigation strategies, implementing control. And, you know, it ends up being like a kind of a game theorist's, um, you know, dream of where you've got defenders doing the, the work, right? It's this chessboard of attack and defense. And building capability they're always innovating you know we have to as josh mentioned you've got to be right really all of the time and so building capability with automation understanding home field advantage i love that that's that's great i'm using that one tony that's fantastic um the unfortunate piece is though is a lot of advanced adversaries um sometimes know your network better than you do and it, it's a very interesting uh proposition to where now i've lost home field advantage and also an attacker uh, understands where my weak points are and can uh, at will um, utilize that for their own nefarious needs or whatever uh, the underlying intent is. So again, with the hunting piece, it's um, really building your uh, home field advantage to make it um, not only the home field, but the home fortress advantage, right? But we're building these walls and these capabilities to prevent what we're seeing uh, in the wild and, uh, you know, utilizing... Uh, again, the vendor community, working with those partners that can provide us the intelligence that we can't readily collect ourselves to inform us so we can build greater protection. So it is, you know, it, it's kind of, uh, it's not an individual, it's the village coming together in order to uh, fulfill the goals of uh, all the organizations involved. It's an ecosystem that we really need to uh, to enhance and harness and it hurts the ecosystem when the supply chain, um, you know, introduces vulnerabilities that you're not ready for. Uh, and, you know, Log4j obviously comes to point of mind there. And uh, no, it's, it's a reaction in some cases there, Tony. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Sean. I think, a, you know, a lot, a lot of clever big ideas in there, right, around scaling, around automation for, for defense. And, sure. you know, I, I was just listening to a, a, a webinar today from the Cyber Threat Alliance from some of the key members of that, right? And they were talked about, uh, one one of the motivations for what they do is to is watching the bad guys get better organized, more automated, sharing more about tradecraft and tools and so forth. Now I used to joke, if you want to see capitalism in action, don't study the good guys, study the bad guys. You know, because it's very Darwinian, right? Only the strong survive, and you see the specialization, right? Money mules and tool builders and reconnaissance. You know, there's a certain kind of you know economics happening there, right? That that is about scaling, and uh, you know, if you look at the, I'll say, some of the projections from our leadership for 2022, you see a fair amount of, you know, the things that have plagued us, more of it's coming, but you also see an underlying theme of scaling about bad guys, right? Supply chain attacks are about scale. And, you know, it's not about that target and that vulnerability and that flaw in that piece of software that's used by these people. It's really about mass market scaling. And we see that in ransomware, Josh, right? You know, it's like, I'll hit, I'll hit thousands of victims and, you know, 1% pay and I've got a good day. You know, it's a 
scale is a big part of the attack side. And the, both what you guys have said and what others of our leadership suggested in the blog was really about scaling of defense, right? And you don't scale linearly by, well, we're going to hire five more people. You rethink everything, technology, process. How do I manage my IT, right? So I can, you know, have, have visibility and these sort of basic uh, things that could contribute to a home field advantage, right? That's, uh, that's you know, people like the mystery and the, you know, the sort of um, drama of let, let's, uh, this, this management of IT stuff is not working. Let's start hunting. Well, wait a minute. If you can't even establish, you know, what your environment looks like, it's not clear what you're going to hunt for. What information would allow you to hunt rationally, right? And to optimize that. And I, as Sean, you gave the example, I might be getting threat information from a different source that helps me target where to hunt. And that was, people don't realize the, the original hunting mission was about combining kind of defense with signals intelligence, because I worked at the only place that did both. And the idea was that was unique information about adversaries and their intentions. Could I use it to drive a technology search for bad guys in our enterprise? So that, that, that's become part of the landscape of our industry now. But I think those this idea of scaling, both for attackers, because they're going to do it anyway, right? This is where the money is. We're the victims. If they're not attacking us through the net, they're crazy. You know, they're incompetent. <laughs> but Scaling for defense, I think, is you know, from as Josh said, expanding your workforce to Sean's ideas around you know automation and, and all that. I think are really something. And Josh, any other thoughts about this sort of big scaling? You know, what what should we be looking for in the next year? Yeah, well, it, when you were talking about that, I thought about something else that we're really seeing a lot of is that it's not necessarily the bad guys getting into a network and then exfiltrating data mm -hmm. or spreading laterally, obviously that still happens. But what we're also seeing, and this um, marries nicely with what you're saying about the money and the business opportunities that attackers are using and the scalability is this idea of, I'm going to gain access to as many networks as I can, and then I'm going to advertise on their dark net or somewhere else where I've got, you know, for X amount of dollars, I'll give you access to this company and this company and this government agency, because I'm sitting in their network right now, but I'm not making any noise. And that's why things like multi-factor authentication and zero trust networks are so important is to cut out even some of that possibilities. But, you know, if you're still thinking, I'm going to catch bad guys because when they get in, they're going to make noise and they're going to trigger something. That is not the case in that's many a, of these attacks. That's a tremendously important point, Josh, is that, yeah, that's right. They can lay their infrastructure in unobserved, right? And now, again, this is very capitalistic and they can sell it, right, to the, you know, to those of... You know, I was really struck by this, by some of the things that Sean said around that. You know, oh, the other thing was Sean, like in the point about supply chain and so forth. These are not blind attacks, right? They are exhibiting significant understanding of business processes of targets. You know, where do things come from, right? What what level of control and permission or updating? What these are not kitties throwing you know mud against the wall and hoping something sticks. This is thoughtful. And they're not picking like simple technologies, right? These are actually complicated technologies that fit into complicated business processes. And so to effectively lay an attack infrastructure requires a fair amount of thought. Right? And because you're, again, you're trying to keep your visibility low, your costs low and your opportunities high. So I think that's very striking to think about that. That says, you know, bad guys are getting better. Right. Again, they, they have to. This but this is they're not going away because this is where the targets are. This is where the money is or whatever their their objective happens to be. And then, Josh, to, just to, to circle back on your point. Right. The 
you don't understand attacks without understanding the objectives of attackers. And yes, there's a huge case of you know ransomware, the classical follow the kill chain, et cetera. But that's not the only class of problem that we have to worry about. And so our our defense is less, um, and Sean used one of the old phrases, right? I have to be right everywhere. I might quibble a bit with that, you know, because again, it, it, you can't prioritize everywhere, but you have to say, I have to understand my, and you've, you know, this is where you live, the criticality about my business, what is critical to my business and design my defenses to that, right? Which is really a little more thought about okay, what is critical and what are the paths to it or what are the things that could affect it and what are my defenses? And so that I, you know, I know that's the way you think, but you know, we have a tendency to, to, go, to retreat back to these uh, kind of sayings that we, you know, that we use about uh, uh, the business. And, um, but I think you know, getting below the hood of them to think about these, these much more complex issues is really important. So, John, any other, any other uh, things that will really strike you that you're looking out for or that are, you think are the, worth uh, sharing with our audience over the next about the next year. Sure. Yeah, there was a couple uh, comments. Uh, again, Tony, if I reference uh, the blog posts, I thought James Globe, uh, Vice President of Operations, uh, working with Josh, um, is the uh, uh, really think the zero trust model. Uh, and Josh, you know, obviously appreciate your thoughts about this is it is going to be something that we need to move to as uh, really as an industry uh, across multiple verticals, as it were, from industry into this uh, into this area. It's you know we're seeing the attack vector, um, and like you say, Tony, one of the things that we need to think about is it's a business for the attacker too. I'm not going to spend hundreds and hundreds of hours on something that's not going to be um, profitable. I'm doing it for a reason, right? That's their underlying mechanism is if I'm going to pay this amount, amount uh, uh, all this time, as it were, put that investment into this, it's got to, you know, kind of benefit or be part of another's um, chain of attack methodology. As you mentioned, this is, it's an ecosystem. It's not individuals. It's groups of people coming together uh, in order to enact and uh, utilize these capabilities from multiple specialists. And I think that's also kind of key as well. You've got specializations across all of the, uh, you know, the, as it were, the kill chain, but the, um, the, the chain of uh, delivery of these types of capabilities. So I think zero trust, huge um, in terms of thinking about a model moving forward. Uh, again, it's some are gonna be very quick to market as it were, to, to utilize that as a model. Others, it's gonna take time and they're gonna to need to see use cases and and how do I do that for this type of environment and things. So, uh, but I do see that as a, as a great impetus uh, moving forward. Yeah, that, and it's a great way to, to to come full circle on that thought, John, right? We, we often forget that the bad guy has a risk model too, you know? Yes. And if you if you treat <laughs> them as superhuman, 10 feet tall magicians, then you have no defense. What, what, what am I gonna do? Right. And it's easy to give up, but to be conscious of their risk, right? That they, and, and you know, it, it, when I worked nation state issues, I kept reminding people that there's always two levels of risk for the attacker, right? There's a sort of technical fight that we're in but at least government to government, you think of the attacker reports to a senior decision maker, right? a politician, a, a head of an agency. And your goal often as a defender is not to stop everything. It's to induce uncertainty on the part of the attacker, right? How, wait a minute. Am I, you know, if I do this, am I going to get caught? Are they watching? Are they logging? Are they, you know, will I have to authenticate? And then that, that, that my failure will be lost. You know, you are, you are working their risk model as a defender at the same time. 
And that's a healthy, I think, way that you described it. And that's an important uh, perspective. Any other things uh, from your perspective, John? So that was some great stuff from from the folks in your area, by the way, both uh, James and and uh, Stephen. You know, these are guys that live this stuff day to day. And I was uh, really struck by their, their thoughtful comments. But any other reflections from the ops side of this? Yeah, well, we've got a great team over on ops. So thanks for recognizing them and having some of them on here too. And I would just say for those listening, it's very easy to get caught up in the just feeling overwhelmed. Like, geez, I can't do zero trust networking. I can't implement single sign on. I don't have the money for that. But I would say pick something based on your risk and start somewhere, even if it's implementing multi-factor authentication on one app or for a subset of users or uh, reducing the amount of privileged accounts in your network. Start somewhere with something that you can do and over time you will see great effects from that and it's about training your organization it's a culture of cybersecurity. that's a whole component to work on and then trying to integrate these things even if it's slow and iterative approaches to get where you need to be i think is really important and just you know one step forward uh, is better and you never know what attacks that you're preventing even by doing what you're doing and then also look at things that's a push we're going to have this year within um, the MSI SAC and EII SAC is helping people get to secure cloud environments as well. So if you're an organization, we've talked a lot about nation state attacks and sophisticated attacks, but people still have to worry about the script kitties, uh, you know, sending automated attacks at your organization. And so are there ways that you can get to get, you know, get your exchange environment in the cloud, for example, and stop having to worry about that or have some of your uh, use built-in DLP solutions from Microsoft or Google or something like that to protect the data you've got uh, in unstructured servers all over. You know, there are other things, too, to help with some of this risk decisions that, uh, yes, it takes some time, but in the big scheme of things, some of them are fairly inexpensive and, in fact, could even save you money. So I think that's something we're going to help organizations with this year as well. Yeah, that's that's a that's a wonderful point, and you know you're right on point with the CIS philosophy, right? <laughs> Better to move a, a few steps in the right direction than no steps in any direction, and it is overwhelming. I mean, that's you know the the title of this podcast series, right? Is uh, where you are, <laughs> and because we recognize we all start from different places, and no one gets to throw away their IT and start from scratch. No one gets to suddenly get overwhelmed by buckets of money that they can you know build whatever Taj Mahal defenses they want. That's not the world that you know, our listeners and our adopters live in. And so we have to help them. You, you have to deal with the crisis, but it's also, you know, Sean talked about the balance between, you know, a planned uh, evolution and improvement program vice dealing with the crisis. You're going to have both, but you don't want to lose sight of this improvement because that's the foundation that'll help you deal with these, you know, the, the hack of the month, the, the crisis of the quarter or whatever the, the next thing coming is. So I think that's, that's very wise advice. And again, that's, that's what we built this company on, right? The, we, we've, to, to help people sort through all that noise. And we get it. We, we've all lived this and it is uh, an overwhelming problem for many folks that we support. And so our, our job is to help uh, clean that up. So lightning round time, let's wrap up here. But uh, Sean, any last thought you care to leave with the, the listener on what, what to see in 22 or anything else? There's always something interesting that you're, you're looking at. Yeah, there's always something interesting. Uh, I think, um, Tony, I'm going to reflect on one of your, um, on your comment on some of the cyber risk quantification maturity. Hmm. Understanding your risk is as important as understanding your network. And I think bringing that to uh, really the level, the board, and, and understanding that with leaders in your organization is going to help convey the small steps forward. And I understand, you know, there's some 
organizations that do not know where to start. And, you know, we want to provide um, information in that space. So I think that's really important is to contextualize your risk, get it prioritized and, uh, and start with a very small plan. But these small steps get you your pace up, as it were, to a, uh, to a walk, to a jog, to a sprint and get you closer to doing something than, as you mentioned, Tony. Can't stand still. Not in this space. It's too dynamic. Exactly. And Sean, I, uh, you know, and one of the things I appreciate about about the working here at CIS and and with you on this podcast, right, is I get to watch a uh, you know a high class risk manager in action every day. And so, you know, having grown up as the techno wonk who who makes his living throwing mud at other people's solutions and telling them why they're bad. I get to watch you in this dance of trying to balance the company's objectives with the technology, with all these things, and support decision making. And I think that's that's the right context, and that's why I wrote about that in in my brief session. So thanks for highlighting that. I really appreciate it. Josh, any last thought on on the future of this year, or any other things you care to share with the listener? Yeah, I would footstomp what Sean just said. The communications with executives is something else that we're seeing a lot of people struggle with. Is how do we articulate to the board of directors, to the city council, to our board of governors or whoever you have for your organization to uh, help them understand this, the risks and threats associated to us and put it into business terms. So that's something that I think uh, if CISOs or other security leaders can figure that out on how to communicate with their uh, managers and their boards and executives, that is a huge step in the right direction. And the other thing along that line is don't wait for the Log4j or Kaseya or whatever, as you said, that hack of the month happened to you before you test some of these things out. Have an incident response plan, do tabletop exercises with that plan, make sure that you pull in legal and communications and HR and your executives on those tabletops so they understand if and when this happens to us, these are the things that are going to need to happen. And don't, I've seen too many organizations do this dance the first time when it's a real attack and it never ends very well for them. So I would you know, make sure that part of your preparation is having those things yeah. up front. That's great advice, uh, Josh. And, you know, that's that's part of uh, a big part, actually, of what we do at CIS. You know, the, the way one conceptual way, we've never put this in marketing, of course, but one way I think of CIS is we look around for problems that every enterprise has to solve, but they don't need to solve by themselves because everybody else has that same problem, right? So why wouldn't we figure out a good comms plan or an instant response plan from somebody in the ISAC and share it? I know that's what you guys do every day. It's sort of, can we can we learn from each other? You know, we all learn best from someone who's like us, who's in a similar situation. So, but many times you can't find that other party. Well, that's one of the services that we provide here, right? It's a way to connect with your peers, learn from each other. And these don't have to be thousand page, you know, bureaucratic government ease. These are plain English, what to do, right? What's What steps should you put in place? I always said the worst time to meet your general counsel is in the middle of a crisis around cybersecurity. You ought to have that discussion long before then about what are we going to do if this happens? And so, but helping others learn from each other, I think is an incredibly important part of this. And again, we all have to solve these problems. No reason we shouldn't just crib the other persons or, you know, have a template or a way to do that. And I, I, I hope I'm, I'm sure I'm correct speaking for you, Josh. You're always waiting to hear about people's needs for this kinds of stuff, right? So that we can can meet those needs. Anyway, so thanks. It's been a, a lively conversation as always. Um, uh, to summarize, we wanted to take a look at our uh, leadership projections for 2022, explore some of them in more detail, and 
you know, kind of uh, engage in a discussion about uh, some of the implications and some of the other things that we are seeing. So I greatly appreciate uh, Josh uh, Mullen joining us uh, to bring us a, a really wise operational perspective. And as always, it's a pleasure to to have uh, Sean as a co-host and, and a fellow conversant about these kinds of issues. So uh, don't forget to subscribe to us. It's a brand new year in the usual way. Uh, cybersecurity, where you are from the Center for Internet Security. Uh, we are, we're always interested in topics of interest to you. As I said, you know we're all trying to solve the same problems, so let's solve them together. So let us know the kinds of things that you're interested in and we'll do our best to address it within uh, this format as well as the other things that we do at CIS. With that, thank you all very much. Uh, Josh, again, thank you for being here. And Sean, great to see you again. Thank you for listening to the show today. If you are interested in learning more about how to grow your cybersecurity program, the free tools available to help you on your journey, or to get involved with the CIS volunteer community, visit our website at cisecurity.org. Start secure and stay secure.